0: Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to you. That's good to be with you this morning. And uh, often, when we begin our sermons, we will remind our church family of our vision to be a family of servant missionaries following Jesus with our whole selves because of who He is and what He has done. We are all about Jesus at this church. We worship Him, we submit to Him. We trust Him, follow Him, receive His grace, His mercy. We're dependent on Him. We preach His kingdom and His cross. Remember His life, His death, His resurrection, and during Advent season, His incarnation. Praise be to the living God who sent His Son in the form of a baby to bear upon His shoulders... The full weight of God's wrath. That we might experience freedom from sin. That we could rest in grace. And that we could have the guarantee of the full redemption and restoration of our entire being and the entire world. Can we just, as a church, rest in that truth this morning? find hope in that truth this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but I really hate running. Uh, I'm not a runner. It feels pointless to me. Uh, I know all the reasons why people love it. Um, It's, you know, good for you, and you get to challenge yourself, and be in nature, and all the things, Um, but I hate running. I like sports. Like, I like soccer, especially when I'm destroying Maggie when I'm playing her in soccer. No? I'm just, taunt, I'm just taunting her so we can get the soccer going again. Um, yeah, I like to play a sport that involves running, but like just running to run, nah. man. Um, when I think about running, I usually imagine being in some scenario where I wish I didn't have to run, where I'm like running away from something or someone that I'm afraid of. Um, so I'm imagining like a large herd of cattle or something, like chasing me down a hill. Like th- those are the like negative experiences in my mind when I think about uh, running. so I was trying to think about when have I run where I was excited, where I was pumped about running and there was something I was running to uh, that was good. And I, I literally couldn't think of a time where I'd like run for joy. Um, but I, I did remember of an occasion where I saw somebody else running for joy and uh, th- their joy in that moment invo- invoked joy in me. It was probably a little more than a year ago, one Sunday after service, our whole church family went down to the panhandle to play kickball and I had Tony on my team and I don't know if you guys know this or not but Tony normally walks around with a cane. Did did you lose your cane? We need to get you a new cane. You leave it on the bus? We need to get you a new cane. But I had Tony on my team to play kickball and he gets up. It's his turn to get up and all of a sudden I'm like okay we're gonna see how this goes and Tony just kicks this ball so so far and so high But then he just starts booking it towards first base, faster than I've ever seen a grown man run in my life. Um, And I was thinking, there must be a million dollars buried under first base, dude, because Tony is getting after it. And the pure joy on that man's face when he was running to first base uh, will stay in my memory forever. When something is beautiful and worth celebrating and the beauty overwhelms us, when we know where treasure is, we drop everything and run to it. Like that's what this story is about. That's what these shepherds did. When we are desperate for a savior and we know we can find one in Jesus, we run. We make haste. There's no delay. Nothing else matters. Nothing is as important in that moment as getting to Jesus. Let me pray for us before we jump into our text. Jesus, we need your help this morning. We don't run to you. We, don't, we often don't view you as treasure. Uh, we spend most of our lives aimlessly running away from our fears rather than intentionally running toward you. And so we need your help this morning. Jesus, would you reveal yourself in this story? Would you cultivate our imaginations? Help us to put ourselves in this scene and experience this in a new and real way this morning. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. We're going to go through this passage. And as we look at Jesus' birth in Luke's account, there's four things that I think are really important, and I promise to go through them quickly, uh, that we're going we're gonna to look at together. One is the importance of the context, okay, the historic moment of what's actually going on um, in the Roman Empire, in the Middle East during this time. Number two, the setting, so the actual location of Jesus' birth, where he's at in Bethlehem and in the manger, in the stable. Number three, the witnesses. The shepherds, like why are they there? What is God telling us through these men who get to see Jesus for the first time? And then finally, the message of the angels' words to the shepherds. Those are the four things that I want to look at this morning. So let's start with the context. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea. That's about 80 miles. That's a walk from here to Sacramento. Okay, To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was, out, he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, Luke is a Gentile who became a Christian. He's also a physician and has set out to write an orderly and historic account of Jesus' life and teaching. He tells us that much in Luke chapter 1. It's really important to Luke that his readers understand what was going on during the time of Jesus' birth. He mentions Caesar Augustus here very intentionally. If you don't know your Roman history, Augustus was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, an important politician who was the first Roman to ever be deified and considered a god. Julius Caesar claimed to be a god. He was assassinated but named Augustus, who was his nephew, as his adopted son and the heir in his will to take over for him. Augustus then followed suit By claiming that he too was a god, giving himself the name Augustus, which means holy or revered. Okay, I read an historic article this week that said this. Early in his reign, Halley's Comet passed over Rome. Augustus claimed it was the spirit of Julius Caesar entering heaven. If Caesar was a god, then as his heir, Augustus was the son of God and he made sure that everybody knew it. Now regarded as part God, Augustus encouraged stories of his frugal habits. Check this out. He let people know that he lived in a modest house, slept on a low bed, and when he wasn't fasting, ate only very plain food like coarse bread and cheese. And then there's even an ancient inscription that called him the savior of the world. Remind you of anybody? Luke knows his readers really well, and so he is very intentionally setting up a contrast between these two saviors. The self-proclaimed Savior Augustus and Jesus Christ, the true Savior of the world. Kent Hughes writes this in his commentary. So the world had at its helm a self-proclaimed, widely accepted God and Savior luke the historian and theologian wants us to see this as the tableau for understanding the coming of the real savior the contrast could not be greater the baby mary carried was not a caesar a man who would become a god but a far greater wonder the true god who had become a man we like those in this time will have to choose between caesar And Christ. Like there will always be a person or an institution or a political party or a new set of ideals or a self-help book. Claiming to have the answers to our problems. Claiming to be the savior of our lives and the savior of the world. If everybody would just think like me and be like me and do these things then our world would flourish. And we have to choose between one of those or Jesus Christ, who is the true and only lasting and real Savior in the world. That's the context. Let's look at the setting. Why are they in Bethlehem? Well, it tells us Augustus wanted to a record of all the people in the empire and the purpose was for taxation and for military service. That is why they are traveling to Bethlehem from Nazareth. That's Caesar's reason. That's his agenda. We know that God's greater purpose is for the fulfillment of a prophecy in Micah chapter five, verses two, all the way back in the Old Testament. He says this, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. God is using Caesar Augustus as his puppet to get Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Who has a greater lasting legacy, Jesus or Augustus? Verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary finally arrived in Bethlehem, exhausted from a long and arduous journey, walking 80 miles unless they somehow had a donkey that she could ride on, only to find out when they get there that there is no place for them to stay and the baby is coming. Moms, you want to weigh in here? You just walked, you're pregnant, you just walked 80 miles, okay? And you're, you're going into labor and there's no, there's no room for you. How you feeling in that moment? <laughs> a little frustrated? William Barclay says this in reflecting on this moment. That there was no room in the inn was symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus. The only place where there was room for him was on a cross. He sought an entry to the overcrowded hearts of those around him. He could not find it. And still his search and his rejection go on. Imagine your heart is like Bethlehem. Jesus is seeking to be born there. It's his chosen birthplace. Luke draws our attention to this detail of the story as a way to ask us whether there is any room for Jesus in our lives. And in order to appreciate and accept the incarnation, we too have to admit that indeed we have not prepared a place for him. The only place we've given room for Jesus in our lives is on a cross. And we would sooner send him there than any of those present at the day of his conviction to be crucified. We have to believe that if we're Christians. If we rightly believe that, that Christ has been so greatly rejected by us, and yet willingly placed himself in humble swaddling clothes, allowed himself to be nursed by an earthly mother, raised by an earthly father, picked on by earthly siblings, used by people who followed him around just so they could be fed or healed and then ultimately crucified. If we can believe he did all of that willingly, of his own accord, for us, perhaps then we might make haste to follow him, though we were slow to make room for him. Yahweh was specific about the conditions of Jesus' birth. Imagine God, the father, preparing the scene, setting up the scene for his baby boy to be born. He decides it will involve dependency. It will involve humility. I'll place his birth mom and adoptive father in such a place, such a state that they will have had to give up all control over their circumstances. The space must be dirty. It will be lowly. Unlike an earthly mom and dad, right, who might say only the best and the highest and the most pristine for my child's birth, God the Father contrasts his expectations by saying only the lowly for my exalted firstborn son. Indeed, if you want the whole world to know that your birth has meaning for them, you will have to dress down. You will have to make yourself lower than the least of these. Because otherwise you will have excluded someone. God will not have it. Not for his boy. No, his son will be meek and lowly and at the bottom. Because from the bottom, he will have all people in view. And he came for them all. Ken Hughes says, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. Want us to listen to that sound for a second? Are our hearts ready to make room for Jesus? Are the conditions right? Are we humble enough to receive Christ? Can we accept our dirt, our stink, our frailty? Have we stopped looking for somewhere else to go? a better place to lay our head? If not, we aren't ready for Jesus. Jesus is calling us from inside the dirty stable. That's the only place we will find him. Are you making haste to meet him there? Ken Hughes says, it is not enough to hear about Jesus. It is not enough to peek in the manger and say, oh, how nice. What a lovely scene. It gives me such good feelings. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born in your heart. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, without the living Christ, is a yellow brick road to darkness. Let's look thirdly at the witnesses. Just as significant as the historic setting and the location of Christ's birth are these first witnesses. Verse 8: And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What do we know about shepherds in Palestine in the first century? Well, if we trace the history of this profession in the Bible, we actually kind of get mixed messages. On the one hand, patriarchs, prophets, and esteemed members of Jesus' own genealogy, like Abraham, Moses, Rachel, these are all people that held the position of shepherd. King David was a shepherd and penned what is arguably the most popular psalm of all time, Psalm 23, that equates God's very nature and character with shepherding. But what God demonstrates as a high position in his kingdom often has a way of being slowly denigrated by those who do not truly know him. So, by the time we get to this setting, shepherds have fallen to the lowest place in the social order of the Jewish people. How can that be? But they have. They were considered ceremonially unclean by the Pharisees and religious leaders of the time. Hughes says shepherds were despised by the good, respectable people of that day. According to the Mishnah, shepherds were under a ban, they were regarded as thieves. The only people lower than the shepherds at that particular time in Jewish history were lepers. One passage describes them as incompetent. Another says no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. That's not nice. (laughs) Hey, these guys are dirty. They're on the fringes of society. They didn't participate in the regular religious rites of the people. They were outcasts. These are the people that we ignore when we walk down the street. The people that we think are unclean or we don't like the way they smell or they don't talk like us, act like us. Why are these shepherds here? This is meant to give us hope. It's meant to help us find ourselves in and identify with these men. It doesn't matter how important you are or how successful you are. Each of us is somewhere on the edge of some circle or just on the other side of a closed door where the really important people are. Right? Is that not true? If it is indeed true that all are welcome to celebrate the coming of Jesus, then what better way to demonstrate that than by choosing shepherds to be the first witnesses of his birth? This is the God of the Bible. He takes the least expected and elevates them to high positions. In his kingdom, the first are last and the last are first. We're getting ready in January to go through the entire narrative, the whole story of God in five weeks from the beginning to the end. And man, you'll just see that over and over and over. You'll, as you hear about these characters who are in God's story, that are part of his plan, that are in the genealogy of Jesus, you'll ask yourself over and over again, why them, why them, why them, why them, why them? Why them? What is God doing? What is he cultivating in your heart? Maybe you would ask yourself, why me? Why them? Why me? If them, maybe me. But most importantly, more important than the historic setting, the location of his birth and the first eyewitnesses was the message those shepherds received from the angel. The message is what caused them to run with haste to meet Jesus. Let's pick it up in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the word euangelion. Okay, sounds a little bit like evangelist. It's the word gospel. It's good news. It's what we preach. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angel uses three specific words to describe who this baby is. Savior, Christ and Lord. Jesus is our Savior. He's the only one who is able to save us from our predicament of sin and brokenness. The name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And salvation is the word in the Old Testament that describes God as the deliverer of his people. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, we'll see this in the story of God. It is almost entirely about God delivering his people from captivity over and over again. Physical captivity as well as emotional and spiritual. We miss the point of Christ's incarnation entirely if we miss him as saviour. Now, maybe you're offended, or people you know would be offended, by the notion that you need saving. That's a lofty claim, right? We don't go around telling our friends who are not Christians, you need saving, dude, you need saving, right? That's an offensive thing. And I understand that, the offense that people take, because admitting your need for some rescue outside of yourself is either the most ludicrous and weak thing to do, okay, it could be that, or it's the most rational and humble thing you could possibly do. The Bible says it's the latter. I believe it's the latter. The angel says he is Savior, but also that he is Christ. Jesus being Christ means that he has authority from heaven to reveal God's nature to mankind. That Jesus possesses within himself the fullness of God. So that if you're wondering about God, if you want to know about God and learn about God, all you need to do is look at Jesus. And then you will know the fullness of God's character. Michael Wilcox said this in his Commentary: Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah and both mean the anointed one, the chosen. Jesus is the one whom God has authorized and empowered to carry out the work of salvation. So we cannot receive Jesus as Savior, but not as Christ. We can't ask him to be our deliverer, while not appreciating his status as a member of the triune God. A Savior who is not Christ may offer us temporary relief that feels like saving, but it is Christ who is the representative of God himself, and only he is authorized to forgive us fully and completely and bring reconciliation between us and God. There's a trend that I've been learning about and thinking about this last week. Uh, it's this idea called the kingdom without the king. It's the idea that oftentimes, and I think in a more post Christian culture, uh, people want all the benefits of Christ's kingdom things like justice, right? Equality, freedom, all these beautiful things that have come out of Christianity without having Jesus, though, as the rightful king who sits on the throne of that kingdom. If we want to benefit from Christianity. Maybe we even want to benefit from the church. We want to join a church and all the wonderful things that a church provides, community and love and grace and mercy, all of these things, preaching, learning about the Bible. But we don't want Christ, who is the head of his church, which makes this final title so important, Lord. Lord means master. It means Jesus has absolute ownership rights over his people because of his purchase over them at the cross. We cannot have Jesus as Savior and Christ and not have him as Lord. We have to accept him as all three in order to be saved, in order to experience true and lasting joy in order to experience human freedom and flourishing, in order to be healed, in order to live with purpose, in order to stop the madness of our self-preoccupation, in order to drown out the rhetoric of hate and fear of fear and disillusionment that's all around us, we need Jesus, the Savior, Christ, and Lord. But we, all of us, try to reduce Jesus down to only one or two out of these three. Some of us might say, I want to be saved. That sounds good. But I don't trust Jesus' authority. And I don't want anyone in charge of me. That's, That's popular right there. I prefer, I'll take a Lord who manages me, like coddles me, but ultimately has no real power to change me or to rescue me in a deep, lasting way. Someone else might say, I trust Christ's authority, okay, and view him as a true picture of God's perfect justice and righteousness, but I don't need to be saved, and I don't want anyone in charge of me. I prefer a Christ who is distant, uninvolved in the day-to-day of my life. He's there if I need him, but he keeps an appropriate distance from me. Okay? The first example might be someone who is more spiritual and less institutional. Uh, the second person might be more institutional less spiritual. Appreciating different parts of Christ's nature, but not the full thing. Which of those do you have a tendency toward? I think for me, it is almost always that I don't want him as Lord. I can handle an authoritative God who carries out justice. Okay. I can handle a God who rescues me and meets my need. Yes, please. But a God who wants to sit on the throne of every little dominion and kingdom in my heart, mind, body, and soul. No thanks. Like there's some kingdom in my life where I don't want Jesus as king of. No, thank you. I will do whatever I damn well please. You probably can't relate to me, but I'm just saying about me. But when I do that, I reject this Jesus. His life and teaching don't have meaning for me. I'm trying to kind of steal and borrow scraps from the table rather than coming and sitting next to Jesus. The shepherds wanted Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Christ, and Jesus the Lord. And we know because look at what they do in verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Okay, they began telling everyone else. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told him. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart that Jesus is Savior, that he's Christ, that he's Lord. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Those shepherds heard what the angel said, and ran like Tony to first base, baby. Right? They dropped everything and ran, which means they left their sheep there. <laughs> they left their, their livelihood behind. But way more than that. Think of the symbolism in this moment. William Barclay says this, It is most likely that these shepherds were in charge of the flocks from which the temple offerings were chosen. It is a lovely thought that the shepherds who looked after the temple lambs were the first to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These guys have spent their entire lives as shepherds looking at these sheep, caring for these sheep, holding these sheep, bathing these sheep, Presenting them to the temple. And they saw them as the sheep that provided them access to God through the sacrificial system. And then they see what is likely the entire host of heaven's angels singing triumphantly. And they know those sheep are no longer necessary. And they run. They run. For Christ, the Lamb. What are we waiting for? What are we afraid to leave behind? What sheep are we still clinging to? hoping that maybe this will somehow save me when Jesus has been born and he's right over there in a stable, laying in a manger, close enough that he's in running distance? Will we make haste to meet him? Michael Wilcox says, through him is to be done God's saving work, for to him is given God's authority And he is himself God come in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, the Lord. In him and nowhere else is salvation to be found. Can we have enough of him? Or say enough of him? Shall we not rather, once we have grasped what the angel is telling us about him, follow the shepherds in seeking him with all haste and then making known the wonderful news? I pray that we will. I pray that we'll do that. Bow with me. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather with your church family this morning. I'm thankful for those who are here and still in the city and not traveling yet. I thank you for the friends and family members that are with us this morning who have traveled to be with family. It's a gift to gather to Worship you, to remember all the prophecies that were about you, Jesus. And to just use our imaginations to place ourselves in those shepherd's shoes and wonder what would we do? How would we respond? God, I pray as we end this new this year. 2018, and we spend time with friends and family and rest, celebrate Christmas. Jesus, I pray you would help us to make room in our hearts for you. And I pray that you would mark us in this next year with the same joy that these shepherds had. And that that joy would last. it would be a lasting joy as we remember you, Jesus. What you did for us and how you did it. We love you and thank you and worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.